Eric Veal with the AppsJack Capable Communities Podcast, and I am coming to you from Seattle, Washington, which is home of Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, Boeing, and an incredible startup ecosystem that rivals Silicon Valley. Each episode, I bring on friends and guests who are executives and business leaders from the local community and around the world to talk about a topic that we find very interesting. Please enjoy this episode. I'm Andrew Single, and we're back with the AppShask Capable Communities podcast. So wanted to start off by addressing something Michael asked about, the, uh, about what is exactly a cargo cult. So that uh, comes from stories about uh, some foreign aid disbursements to Africa and other developing countries where uh, supplies, medicines, things like that were brought in on planes that landed on runways. So the first thing these uh, UN people or whoever were doing were they would build a runway near some remote village. They would fly in supplies, you know, plane landed, uh, you know, medicine and other wondrous things came off for the local villagers. And um, usually it came to pass that these uh, aid programs would end, the planes would stop coming, and the tribespeople didn't understand exactly what was going on. So they would build new runways, and sometimes they would build entire facsimiles of planes. You know, maybe they felt the plane had been lonely, you could use some company. So, um, you know, you would have these runways and these planes, but of course, no new planes would come. And that is at the heart of cargo cult thinking. So in business, you have these uh, situations where somebody will write up a rote checklist of things to do. Might not have any bearing on actual success, but that's how we've always done things. So, you know, that's what works. And that's where you get into a lot of problems. And that book I mentioned, Human Competence, is uh, targeted at identifying and overcoming some of those difficulties. One of the things they talk about is performance improvement potential. So when you have identified a process that uh, has some problems with it, you want to identify what is the potential for improvement. Often this comes about by finding a, finding a low performer and seeing if you can teach them to reach a higher level of performance. And something they get into is that when you identify an area of particularly low performance, this is something you should be happy about because there's a large improvement potential present. When... Uh, Often, the author uh, said it can be unproductive to try and make the strongest areas of an organization better because it's difficult to uh, find out how to really give much of an edge to to people who are already your strongest performers. When you find an area like if your uh, you know if your customer acquisition is just on the rocks because you know contacts are getting dropped and uh, you know calls aren't getting followed up on, that's good because you know that's an area where you can immediately make a large improvement as opposed to something where you're already cutting edge and you're just trying to eke out a little more. But in many uh, business processes, they end up trying to eke out a little more of the strong areas while letting the weak ones just, uh, you know, just rot and not pay attention to those. So that's what I think can frame our discussion on metrics. So, um, So one of the things that we discussed a little bit is what are you measuring and how are you Mm -hmm. measuring success and failure? Right. And what is and isn't meaningful failure? One of the things I've seen as a DevOps engineer is that there's a lot of cultural um, obstacles. In fact, there's an argument that most of the 
obstacles in moving away from traditional IT and sysadmins are cultural. And people reject automation. And one of the reasons that traditionally they have is because there can be a culture within a company that celebrates firefighting, which means like if there's a big outage of the software, the guy who rescues the software and gets everything online gets, you know, in one case, a trip to Hawaii at a company that I heard of. And yet this is addressing the wrong thing. You really didn't necessarily need to have the outage in the first place. And if you had built more robust software, but there's not the glamour in just saying like, we're going to build software more responsibly. We'll have test coverage as saying like, this guy was able to figure out the problem within 10 minutes and get us up and running. So are you celebrating your designers who are the people or the, the architects, the people who are building the robust software or just taking advantage of them? And are you rewarding firefighters? Well, our present culture has as a norm that software does crash and that it does go down yeah. regularly. Yep. So when it doesn't, it, um, there's, not much, there's not much glamour there. Mm. Well, and I was thinking about it, you know, are you celebrating the architects or are you ce uh, celebrating the disaster recovery team that's going to go into the building that collapsed and try to rescue ev everyone? Right. So in your experience, how have metrics been used? You mentioned GEICO and some other organizations. So how do they use metrics in customer service? Uh, one of the ones that was very popular was how much time. Right. So besides the uh, resolution of the call, it was how fast did you do it? And because it's a, in, um, automobile insurance is a fairly complex topic, some people who have had more experience with it, you're able to resolve a, a problem fairly quickly because they understand the underpinnings of how that solution is going to be res uh, arrived at. Other people who are less experienced, um, it takes longer. So I think that uh, management is trying to, um, and this is a number of years ago, so not necessarily the case now, but looking at the few simple things, because management information systems, one of the things that I've seen is let's get more data. You know, we need more information as opposed to let's have the, the uh, information that will give us the best um, outcomes. And then if you have an overload of information, you uh, may be ignoring the uh, critical part because it gets lost. Uh, right, so there's an art else. to using this information. Well, and and limiting it, finding the right question. So it's I, absolutely. The so yeah, I think of the this design so much. is in the yeah, questions and, as well as in the problem. And designing good metrics is really a trick. I mean, we see this again. Like I've spent a lot of time uh, recently designing polling applications, and we when one of my pet peeves in polling applications. <clears throat> Um, specifically around when we're polling people on politics and government, is that they're set up, a lot of times the demographics they collect have to do with traditional ideas of protected class, I think, but it also is not dividing people into groups that will allow for better 
a better foundation for group decision making. Let's take, for example, like if you set people up and you have a poll and you're the first thing you ask them to identify about themselves is whether they're a Republican or a Democrat, then you've set up a conflict model in how they're going to answer every question after that. And likewise, are we just begging the question with a lot of the demographics that we ask for? Now, I realize that in some cases we need this to determine accessibility, et cetera. But in some cases, it's really counterproductive to building a better user experience because there can be quite a lot of agreement. Like one of the things I've noticed in talking to the citizenry following the election and before the election is that unless they're deliberately tied to the oil industry, almost all Americans want clean energy. They want clean power. And this is something that politically we just don't hear about. Nobody runs on an energy first platform, in part because the oil industry is so deeply entrenched in politics. And so what we're measuring there is like, how are we judging what the issues are is problematic in terms of what our experience is. Well, it depends on who it's a problem for. After all, it was uh, Noam Chomsky <laughs> who said that the strategy for political control is to narrow, to greatly narrow the spectrum of agreeable opinion but allow vigorous debate within it. But also, Michael, yeah. I had an idea about, you know, use of data and metrics in the, uh, you know, when you mentioned auto insurance, now, this was some years ago, so I don't suppose they ever tried to figure out, you know, at what rate does this person make calls to their um, insurance adjuster from a bar payphone? <laughs> or I don't know if you have any way. Now, maybe with software, we could tell, you know, how slurred is their voice as they speak? <laughs> could you, you know, quantify that, yeah. uh, that quality? Well, the, the broader topic here is knowledge management uh, and, and really this topic of either product intelligence or... Um, measurement basically, but um, signals and and what you measure. So on the instrumentation and telemetry side, there's many ways that you can wire into your products these days, signals and things that tell you, say in a car, for example, with the computers, you get you can get a lot of information and telemetry out of the car about how it's driven and what what kind of experiences has that car gone through or which of its systems are healthy and so forth. And so there's there's a broader spectrum of uh, measurement for customer service that that uh, where the where, sorry where the customer service is in or the customer experience is in context um, set by the other things that you measured. Yeah. And well, here- yes, we've talked about also. There's a spectrum from information to knowledge, understanding, wisdom. So we have the information. Always. We have the information part of that very well covered now and you know more and more information coming in but translating it transmuting it into those higher qualities is still an open question and there's definitely an art to it it's not an assembly line process so, i want to go back to something that you brought up earlier Elliot, which was talking about software that uh, analyzes customer service conversations and uh, puts it in the text so that it can be um, more easily analyzed. And I, I can't remember the name of the company, but it was a few months ago I was looking at it, and that was exactly what they are doing. So they will be able to come back and report that um, your people uh, who were handling this kind of call um, were able to... Uh, 
give you a report on who can handle it well. Yeah, so I think this is hugely important in terms of identifying relevant metrics is that we get those metrics from the customer instead of thinking, going out with a predefined framework of like your age, your race, your gender, and saying like, we're going to, we're going to identify your opinions by these frankly arbitrary and misleading standards. If the customer was going to tell us what they wanted out of the product, they would probably not be giving us that information. They would be telling us like, (laughs) they would be telling us about occupation, for example. They would be telling us about use. They would be telling us like really relevant information. And so there's a fundamental problem, and we've talked about this a little bit, about the asymmetry of information in customer service. Are you, when you're asking questions of your customer, are you asking open-ended questions that allow them to self-identify? Because your customer may not be who you think it is. Your customer is your customer because they like your product, not because of their age, their gender, blah, blah, blah. You can build correlation there. But you can't build, it's the correlation is not causation, you know, and your product may appeal to somebody because say they're a knitter, you know, and they're because they knit, they use those knitting needles, not because of their age, their race, their gender, etc. So creating engagements that are authentically engaging for customer service is how we can get better metrics. And you're saying that suggests to me that if you build your questions of inquiry in the end of the customer service call, which may or may not work better with live humans rather than bots, um, and you're using uh, analytical software on those, you're going to be able to gather that information. And it's Uh, really important if you're going to try and prompt someone to give you information too, that they know their effectiveness. Because in, in polling, for example, the number one thing I hear from people is like, why am I being polled? Who's doing the polling? Where is the information going? And so if you can demonstrate that it's like, if you could publicly show metrics and say, we got this many complaints on these things, and this is what we did about it, you know, or this is what we analyzed from our customers, and this is what we did about it, then you're really prompting people to participate in the user experience design process. And getting your users to give you that toehold into the process is something that tech support really should be doing. There's another difference that I can think of today where the cost of giving feedback is reducing. And if you think about good software today, I I think there's both it's going to be measured as people use it. And so you understand the click stream and what they're clicking on and are they achieving their scenario or goal. If well-designed software thinks about that and is aware of the user scenarios and user needs and so forth, and they have ways to measure the degree to which the user is basically passing the test of using the software to get their outcome, and you understand this is true also with conversion optimization and shopping carts where the degree to which people bail out of the shopping process and no longer want to proceed. So companies, modern software companies today have uh, good ways of knowing about the customer service for some processes, and so they can, they can measure those things. And then the point I'm trying to get to here is that just by using the product sometimes that's a form of feedback that comes to at no cost to the user and then there's other forms of feedback that come at a very high cost where you're requested to sit down interview explain focus groups, focus groups all this stuff and so you could 
spend a lot of time in your life being exactly that in a focus or user group for a company where you truly care about the health of the company and you want to help them and give them all the info. But 99% of people aren't in that class where they're they're willing to sit down. And so there's, that's another segmentation comment where you've got to... So no. your trust and loyalty and relationship to the brand, though, again, has a relationship to how is if you're giving that impact, is it effective? Like you can take I've been a part of focus groups and then I don't know what happens with them. And they took my time and maybe they took maybe I got some money for it. But what would be really rewarding is seeing how we did this focus group and this is what we came back with. And then like iterating. From right. That gives point. them stake and investment in the process. Metrics around that kind of engagement, investment, it's really about a kind of investment. And that really goes back to the significance discussion. Significance is, that's a measure of somebody's investment in something. And often we want personalization and service that's relative to the investment we make. Be that investment monetary or just be it a personal psychological investment. There's also investment that happens on both sides, right? I think that that's another scenario where a customer might, or a modern organization might literally expect to co-invest. And this is also to Michael's earlier point about some customers want to not be bothered and to do it themselves and to not give feedback and to just use the product to basically buy it and be gone and just consider them happy or a customer or whatever, forget about it. And then, and then there's a flip side of the coin where they, they are invested. Point I'm trying to get to is, is that there's, Uh, an organization that invests a lot in product development and the customer experience and the use of the product per se, they are investing a ton in the customer experience and the whole, just that. Yeah. And, and then there's other times when we want, where, where we both want to invest as the customer or we don't want to, but that kind of quid pro quo seems like part of the issue. Well, yeah, to wrap it up, I would say it's all speculative. Customers serve, you know, people invest in products and services and they want to, uh, you know, see some kind of return on investment through engage, you know, direct engagement and companies now also see, uh, customer service as a form of speculation. And many of them have concluded that it's uh, too risky to speculate in that way, that they should pull out of that market, as it were. But, uh, you know, whenever one entity pulls out of a market, that leaves opportunities for others to uh, go in. So it's, um, you know, you could say it's a financial question. You approach it as you would any other investment. Sounds good. So this has been the Abstract Capable Communities podcast. My name is Eric Veal. I've been here today with Ellie Mungeli, Andrew Single, and Michael Cabot. I want to thank my guests for being here. And uh, next time we'll be, be on and we'll talk about managing human capital. So we'll talk about employees and, and issues related to just dealing with the people. And so in, in this time around, we've definitely um, talked about the technology side in a lot of ways and the human side. Next time, we're really going to focus on the human side. So uh, thanks for listening, and we'll, we'll talk to you next time. You've been listening to the Abstract Podcast. The creator and host of this podcast is Eric Veal. It was recorded, engineered, and produced by Christian Harris. You can contact us and find all our show notes on our website at abstract.libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N. If you like what you hear on this podcast, let us know by writing us a very nice five-star review on iTunes and subscribing. 
You can also find out more by going to abstract.com meetup to get more information on this month's topic and the corresponding meetup group that Eric hosts in Bellevue, Washington each month. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next month for our next episode of the Abstract Podcast. This has been a Seatown Media production. Find out more at seatownmedia.com, S-E-A hyphen townmedia.com.